listeners and welcome aboard costume station zero i'm bob mitch and today i'm joined by mr steve ricks who is a fabulous uh tailor who's done a lot of great work for uh doctor who 10th doctor coats fifth doctor coats and 11th doctor tweed so steve welcome hi so um i, I like to start at the beginning um uh first off before we get into uh, nitty-gritty of tailoring and costuming uh what uh what got you into doctor who who was your doctor uh, well, I've always watched Doctor Who from a very young age. I mean, I've got recollections of seeing um, Spearhead from Space first time it was broadcast. I mean, that that, that really affected me when I was when I was young. Because my mum used to take me down to a uh, uh, supermarket every week down mm-hmm. the high street, and there was a a gentleman's outfitters on the high street. And we would have to walk past it, but we would have to walk past it on the opposite side of the street because I was terrified the mannequins in the window were going to come and get me. Mm. So I mean, it, that it was it was as profound as that. I mean, I was only what I would have been only five years old. So mm-hmm. it's you know it's sort of it's sort of been in in my in my blood from that type of age, and I sort of grew up with John Pertwee. I mean, I, he was. He was sort of my doctor in a way, really. And then suddenly he was, he was going to be leaving. I was like, oh, no. Where's, 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 where's John gone? And there's this guy, this other bloke turns up with like a scarf and a big hat and teeth. I mean, this isn't the doctor. <laughs> then, after, then by episode two of Robot, it's like, hey, this is the doctor. You know, you sort of, as soon as the new one has got his feet under the table, you sort of forget the old one. So Tom became my doctor in that regard. So, yeah, so around that period, I've, I've always been in, into Doctor Who. followed it pretty much all the way through to the end. I lost a little bit of faith in it in the 80s. I felt it was sort of losing its way a bit, and then and then it got cancelled, and then I thoroughly enjoyed it ever since it came back. So it's, it's, it's always been there. It's always been part of my, sort of, uh, part of what I do, really. In terms of costuming, what, what got you started, um, uh, I guess, in general, as, as doing this whole tailoring thing? Well, I mean, again, this this goes back an awfully long way, um, but it's two separate tracks that almost converged. It's it's two very distinct things because um, in the late seventies, I was very much into watching the Muppet Show when it was on TV over here. Oh yeah, and I always wanted to make my own puppets and stuff. So I sort of talked my mother into letting me use her sewing machine. I got bits of um, sort of fuzzy fur from like a um, fabric shop and sort of made myself these sort of puppets so I, I at quite a young age i was quite sort of proficient on a sewing machine just 
having an idea of a shape and what I wanted to make, cutting out bits of fabric, sewing them together and seeing how that came together. So uh, from a piece of flat fabric, I could work out how to make something that was put into something tangible and something you could put on your hand and use as a puppet. So that was that was getting sort of proficient using a sewing machine. But it was when I was a bit of a geeky kid, really. I mean, we were all geeky kids when we were young. Of but, course. Um, I, I, I quite enjoyed being at school and wearing a blazer. I quite liked having a jacket to wear with some pockets in to be able to put my bus pass and whatever. In. And so, so when I left school and moved on to college, I thought, oh, I, I can't not wear a jacket. And I didn't know what to do. So I was casting around and I saw a photograph of Patrick McGurn as the prisoner. And he wore this black blazer with white piping. And I persuaded my mother to sew on some piping onto my old school blazer. Mm -hmm. And I went on to college, went to college wearing this blazer. So it was really for something to, to wear day to day, but something that was just, wasn't just a jacket that I bought from Debenhams or something like that. It was just something a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to, I don't know, I just wanted to sort of just slightly dress up a bit, but not be too obvious so that's why i chose that and it, and it was and this was before i'd even seen the prisoner um and when i did see it i got quite hooked i mean and that's a whole nother story of my life but um i got quite into the prisoner and it was because i, I saw a pipe blazer <laughs> so yeah so in a way cosplay wasn't called that at the time i mean that that sort of got me into in into the sort of prisoner and then when when Colin Baker took over as the Doctor, I was quite taken with his coat. It was in a period of my life when I was at college doing art and doing sort of technical drawing type stuff, and I was looking at his coat and I was thinking, hmm, you can see the shape of every single piece of fabric that makes that coat because every piece of fabric in it is a different colour. Right. And I had a spare blazer of mine, an old one, and I took that apart, laid it out flat with these pieces, and I went around um, all the fabric shops. Because um, in the UK, around that time, in the sort of mid-80s, virtually every high street in the UK had at least one, if not two, fabric shops. Because everyone would... It, there was more people who were, were making their own clothes in those days. The, the sort of designer labels hadn't really kicked in in the UK as much as they have now. But mm -hmm. So I was able to go around all these fabric shops. And I found some pretty good matches for... The, the fabrics that I needed um, it was a, an early it sort of showing of the sort of attention to detail that I had and I okay. still got today you know I really was like sort of that's the quite that's not quite the right shade of green I need to go I need to go to the next shop see if I can find a better one mm -hmm. um, and I spent a fortune trying to find um, a tartan that was just red and black that didn't have a bit of white in it or a little bit of green in it I, I wanted one that was just red and black and I ended up buying some really expensive fabric um, on Regent Street in London. But the rest of it was all purchased quite cheaply. And I just literally just laid out these pieces of fabric that I'd cut out of this blazer and just freehand cut out these pieces of fabric and made this Colin Baker coat. And I just had this sort of driven um, idea of this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this jacket. And I did. And I made this coat. And I just thoroughly enjoyed wearing it to sort of little sort of conventions and little things that I was going to around that time. 
Um, and I've kept it ever since. It's the one thing that I've always hung on to. Um, and sort of not long after that, I didn't really do anything f f for years. I didn't do any sewing or anything like that whatsoever. And it was only until David Tennant took over as the doctor and I thought, I really want that coat. I really want to be able to have like a... Because I thought that coat is something you, you, you could wear day to day without mm -hmm. drawing too much attention to yourself, without yep. looking to stand out in the, on, on the underground. <laughs> uh -huh. So I thought, I really want that coat. And the, and the one I, I found one online being sold uh, from uh, China. And I bought it and I thought, oh, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. And it just did not live up to expectation at all. I was so disappointed when it arrived. And I, I just thought to myself, oh, I could do better than that. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, I used to use my sewing machine to her. Let's have a go. So I, I, I borrowed my mum's old sewing machine back again. Um, I took that coat apart. I did the same old thing again, took the coat apart, laid it out. for well, well, this is where it's wrong. This is where it's right. This is where it's, it needs to be changed. And I created my own pattern, again, just cutting things freehand. I didn't even have a paper pattern or anything like that. I just literally just cut it freehand and made a rather crude tenant coat. It wasn't that great. Made another one, which was the first one I made in Malabar. Right. Um, that was better, but I could see that there was things that could be made better. And it was the third one that I made, which I posted on DW Cosplay, that then suddenly people spotted and were like, said, oh, wow, you've done really, you're really nice. And one particular guy really, really, really wanted one. He just would not leave me alone and mm -hmm. said, would you, would, you, would you make me a coat? And I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. I, I'm not really a professional. I don't really do this sort of thing. So he just kept on at me, and I just thought, okay, I'll make you a coat. So I made him this coat, and it's really just sort of snowballed from there because I just had more and more people asking, oh, can you make me a coat? I think, oh, I don't really want to do that. It's not really what I do, but I've, you know, I've sort of given in and made people's <laughs> coats. And then it's just, it's just a it's just gone on and on and on and just sort of never really sort of stopped it's been quite bizarre so without having that grounding at a very young age using my mum's sewing machine mm -hmm. um as i said there was like a huge gap it may have been like what 15 years or something of not actually doing anything mm -hmm. maybe longer um i then come back to it and it's just like riding a bike just got straight back in there and sort of got and just sort of got on with it uh, that's interesting. So it sounds like uh, you were essentially self-taught. You were doing essentially patterning by hand with the uh, the Muppets. Um, yeah. And this paid off in spades as you got older and you started to tackle the tenant coat. Um, what was I going to ask? First off, did anyone ever clock that you were wearing a prisoner jacket when you were in school? Um, I think one person did. Um, and ironically, um, th this was around... 1982, 1983, mm -hmm. and um, around that time, um, uh, Channel 4 started up in the UK, and they started rerunning quite a lot of old series. They, they were running The Avengers and Lost in Space and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and then they started running The Prisoner, and I was like, oh, okay, I really want to watch this, so I, I watched The Prisoner and got hooked, and a couple of people at college were like, aren't you wearing the jacket that was on TV last night? I was like, oh, you might be, yeah, it might be. <laughs> um, so a few people started to sort of work out what it was that I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, but most people know, most, most people didn't have a clue. Most people just thought, oh, that's just that odd kid who wears, a, wears his old school blazer. People thought it was my school blazer. They didn't realise that it was something that had been 
um, sort of made to look like something else. They, they, they didn't understand that. Sure, but, sure. Uh, but, but it wasn't a problem. You know, I just, I just, I just wore it and just sort of enjoyed having some extra pockets to put things in. Right, right. Uh, when, when you get to the the Colin Baker coat, which was a fabulous coat, especially considering the the time you were in and the limited resources, because I think you were even saying that uh, you were limited to what few published photos there were at the time, and literally like pausing a VHS tape. Oh well, I didn't even have VHS. I mean, we, 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 I mean, I didn't get. Uh, I mean, uh, VHS tapes in those days were about forty-five pounds a tape. Oh. They were they were enormously expensive. Wow! Uh, a, a blank tape in the UK was was just a ridiculous price. Um, it wasn't until sort of late eighties that prices started to come down in the UK that you could actually sort of buy stuff like that. But um, yeah, in in the UK, I mean, we we, we had Doctor Who magazine, which had a colour cover and maybe a colour poster in the middle. And often the back page, which was colour as well, would be taken up by an advert. Mm -hmm. So you had barely four or five A4 areas of colour, sort of printable colour. So, yes, I mean, there there was a particular issue of Doctor Who magazine which had a picture of um, Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant on the front. And that was my big um, reference material. And it was just either between that or just literally just... When the when when there was an episode on Saturday night or whatever, I would just like be watching it to watch Doctor Who, but then thinking, oh, I just noticed there's a bit on the back of the coat there which I need to do, mm-hmm. or I didn't realise the, the 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 back of the coat's got like a, a funny tweed-like fabric. I, I didn't didn't I hadn't noticed that before. So yeah, it was always just always looking at Doctor Who with a slightly different eye from then on, um, trying to work out what that costume was. But yes, I mean the, in the UK, I mean there was there was virtually nothing printed in colour really it was it was very minimal um i mean most doctor who magazine i said was sort of black and white printed and even the even the sort of annuals that, that came out mm-hmm. um each christmas i mean those had a photographic cover but then normally the inside of them was all comic strips and drawn pictures it, it, there was there was very few photographs inside so the, the amount of colour photographic reference material was was very sort of minimal uh, so it was quite difficult sometimes to try to <laughs> work out what colour was what and which bit was where and whatever. So yes, it was it was it was it was quite hard work in those days. I can imagine. It sounds like you worked on minimal reference material, essentially more off of almost memory and freehand. I mean, it's crazy. It's insane. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's one of those things where um, it shouldn't have been able to happen mm-hmm. in some respects. I mean, there was a there was a. Um, uh, some parents contacted me through my blog not long ago where mm-hmm. uh, they'd, um, their five-year-old boy wanted to have a tweed jacket and they could not find a child-size tweed jacket mm-hmm. anywhere. Mm-hmm. So what they did was they found in like a thrift store, they found like an adult tweed jacket that was just a pretty nice uh, Donegal-style fabric. Mm-hmm. And what she did was she just hacked the thing to pieces cut bits out of it and put it back together again hmm. and she made a smaller scale version of the jacket i mean it was so cleverly done the the sort of breast pocket um because she'd cut so much off that had dropped without changing the dimensions it had become the sort of the outer pocket the sort of like a waistline pocket mm-hmm. it, it sort of it sort of position had moves in that in that regard but she'd made this jacket where 
honestly, you would never tell anyone to do this. You would never say, oh, that's, this is how you would do it. Um, but she's just gone out with her own blind faith thinking, oh, this is what I'd do. And she's, and she's done it. And because no one's told her, you can't do that, she's, she, she's, she's, she's actually sort of achieved a result. And that's, I think, in some respects, what I was doing at that time. I was just cutting out bits of fabric freehand. No pattern, no block, no working out what a seam allowance was or anything like that. Just literally just cutting out fabric and making this coat. And I was making it as I was going along. I didn't have all the fabrics um, to start with. I was sort of making bits of it as I went along as I was able to get fabrics available. Wow. So it was it was a real sort of um, patchwork, literally, <laughs> yeah. of, putting this, of sort of putting this sort of thing together. And I think um, when you start out, you, you sometimes have this sort of naive, blind faith that, that's of what you can do. Um, it's only later when you start to sort of learn things and you get taught things and you realize that's not the way to do it. That would never work. But yet you can achieve stuff. It's, it, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with going out there and just having a damn good go at it mm -hmm. and making something. There's, 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 there's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, and I absolutely applaud this, this, this lady for making this tweed jacket for herself. It was absolutely brilliant. No, no, I, I read about that. Yeah, absolutely, indeed. I, I definitely is something I wouldn't have attempted myself. But again, it, exactly, it just goes to show you just dive in and, and see what happens. Yeah. Um, how long did the Colin Baker coat take you from start to finish? Um, it's so long ago, I can't really be too sort of specific. Mm -hmm. um, I think it may have been about two or three months. Sure. Um, I wanted to have it finished by... Uh, a particular August because there was a prisoner convention in uh, Port Merion that year mm -hmm. um, and there was going to be I think like a fancy dress um, ball on the Sunday night and I particularly wanted to have this coat finished in time for that so that was that that, that, that was my deadline um, and, I, and I got it done it was all it was all made in time um, but yeah it may have been about two about two or three months to get it done did you ever compliment it with a full six doctor costume or just the coat? Oh yeah, yeah. I um I had the trousers as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I I I but I had no idea how to make trousers. So I literally went went round um, clothing shops and I managed to find a pair of black and yellow striped trousers. Hmm. Um, they were actually um, a pair of ladies' trousers, ah. but. <laughs> but they that they fitted and they did the job and his trousers are quite loose and baggy anyway so mm -hmm. they sort of did the job so I bought two pairs of those because I needed one pair to wear as trousers and then a second pair to cut up to use as the cuffs right right so I had to buy like a whole second pair of trousers just to cut up to make the cuffs um, but yeah so I had the trousers with it um, I'd made myself um, a, a uh, polka dot uh, cravat mm -hmm. and I think I just used like a tweed waistcoat that I had um, I couldn't really sort of come up with the sort of knitted waistcoat that he wore in season 23 so I just wore like a tweed waistcoat which which when it was underneath the coat and the cravat and with the trousers it, it all worked it all sort of came together and it all sort of happened so yeah I mean it, it was it was the full outfit I've, I've still got the trousers I've still got them but they're like sort of waist 28 or something stupid like so they're never going to fit me ever again 
right. I, I can relate. Um, so just just to loosely cover this this period where you weren't exactly um, making uh, costumes, were were you ever wearing costumes? Were you cosplaying at all? Or I, I hate to use that word because back then you're right, it wasn't called that. But you know, going to conventions or events in costume. No, no. Um, around that time. Um, I was going to the Jerry Anderson conventions. I, I, I went along to a few of those. And there were people there who um, had been to a big auction that I think had taken place at Bonhams or somewhere like that, where angels had sold off a lot of costumes. And they had sold off um, a lot of the Space 1999 costumes, oh. the, Moonbase, the Moonbase Alpha costumes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they'd also sold off a load of the the capes that were worn in the prisoner, um, and there's some stuff from UFO had been sold off as well. So there's these people walking around, and they're wearing original costumes. They're cosplaying huh. in original costumes because ah. they'd been able to buy these things for like they bought like a you know like a Moonbase Alpha top for like sort of fifteen pounds. It was what? like it was ridiculously cheap stuff because they had like great stacks of them. They uh-huh. literally had sort of. They were like sort of okay, so lot lot sort of fifty nine is, is like a moonbase alpha top, lot fifth lot, lot lot sixty is an, is another moonbase alpha top, lot sixty one is a moonbase alpha top and trousers. You know, it was like sort of there was just so much stuff there that they were selling off because, wow. it was, and it was in a period when those programs weren't really popular, right? Um, so it was really just like a load of old rubbish that they were getting rid of. Market was different. Um, yeah, yeah, very sort of different. And then I started going to the prisoner conventions, and those were held on the original location where the series was filmed. And it was like no other convention you could ever go to in your life. You could play human chess on the lawn where that scene was shot. Uh-huh. And it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And somehow going to a convention when you were in a hotel mm-hmm. and you were just like sitting in a rows of chairs with someone at a bench sort of saying, oh, yes, well, I was in the program in 1976. It was all a bit dull. So um, I, I just focused on the sort of prisoner conventions. Um, so I completely dropped out of all of the founders and stuff, any other conventions like that. So I, I spent sort of 10 years or so just going to prisoner conventions because I thoroughly enjoyed those. Um, and when I then started to do other things I, I just I wasn't really into dressing up at all I, mm-hmm. I didn't do any of that um, so there's quite a again there was a quite a huge gap in my life there where there was nothing really going on in that regard um, it was only really when David Tennant took over and I saw that that coat I mm-hmm. thought I really want that coat so um, I'm sorry you said that uh, Halloween is not a big deal in the UK right no no um, in the UK I mean uh, we, we, we sort of celebrate Halloween. We, we do trick-or-treating. Um, people may do, like, apple bobbing, stuff like that. Um, but any sort of door-to-door dressing up, it's normally young children, you know, sort of eight or nine years old, they'll dress up as, like, a skeleton or a witch or something like that. Um, and they'll go door-to-door, sort of go trick-or-treat, and you you give them some sweets, candy, whatever, and off they go. Mm-hmm. It's really just a door-to-door, just going around collecting sweets. That is basically what Halloween always was. Uh-huh. Um, and to some regard, it's, it's, it still is sort of today. So when, when I see things online and people have like done all these costumes for Halloween and they're dressed up as Superman and Wonder Woman and all these other diff- different costumes, which are not sort of 
not sort of horror related at all. I think well, I don't quite understand that. That's not Halloween. That's just that's just sort of dressing up. <laughs> um, I mean, Halloween over here is if you if you dress up, you sort of dress up as a witch, or you dress up as Dracula, or you dress up as a mummy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you sort of dress up as some form of horror character, mm-hmm. but it's only a very casual cheap costume that you might buy from the supermarket for a couple of quid that's been made in, in sort of made in the far east so it's, it's not quality costuming at no, all no uh, so it, so the whole halloween thing um when i started to get into being part of the cosplay community now i, I sort of look at it and think this is like a whole thing that just just does not happen in the uk <laughs> uh, as i said we do we do sort of celebrate halloween we do have people coming door to door pestering sweets but it's it's not it's not any, anything like what you guys do in the states right and it's it sounds like it's more um uh, children will dress up adults not so much oh yeah yeah it's the, it is it is it is really the uh, children um adults don't really do that at all mm-hmm. um so basically your what you consider your first costume would be this colin baker um you know, coat ensemble yes it would i mean that would be my first sort of sort of foray into uh, into cosplay, mm-hmm. um, it was just a sort of. I, I, it was just a something I wanted to do. I just felt sort of compelled to make this thing. Mm-hmm. The thing that I really liked about the coat was the way the lapels were cut, mm-hmm. the way that they fold back right down to the hem, and that that interested me. How that had been done, because I'd never seen a coat before that had the lapels cut that way oh yeah and i've never really seen anything since it really is a standout piece of um garment engineering as to how that's been done to make those lapels fold back like that from right right from the collar right down to the hem Mm -hmm. and that 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 did quite interest me that that was something about that coat which really um made me think oh i want to have a go at that i want to see how that works i want to try to to sort of make that happen and make that work for myself mm-hmm. and i did i, I uh, again i just literally just worked out how to do it cut it freehand and it worked <laughs> i couldn't believe how well i actually managed to get it to work so yeah i mean that 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 was that was a real standout piece for me but as i said nothing ever really caught my eye in that way um since and it wasn't really until the david tennant coat because the, the way that's been engineered Mm-hmm. Um, it looks a very simple coat just looks like a long brown coat but there's mm-hmm. so much more to it mm-hmm. uh, the, the details of how the darts are cut on the back the way the way it works through the interior pockets there's just so much detail that's gone into how that coat is made um, you don't really appreciate it on, on like a first glance and it was only really when I started looking at it closer and watching it a little bit more did I realise that there was something worth having a look at here so uh what what year was it that you you dove in on the tenant cut would that have been 2006 2007 um it probably would have been around 2007 at least yeah mm-hmm. uh yes i think it was like the sort of martha jones year that, that, that i that i sort of started thinking about doing that uh and it would have been out a year later that i started actually posting pictures on dw cosplay because I, I i didn't know that existed i didn't know that there was a, a cosplay community i didn't understand anything about that and it was just like me and my own little bubble oh sure just sort of making this coat because i wanted a coat to wear mm-hmm. 
um, out and about and going to and from work. It, it wasn't anything more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't going to any conventions at all at that time um, in the UK. Um, I knew things were going on, but it wasn't really something that um, I wanted to sort of take part in. I have the impression that while the show was certainly a hit from the get-go when it came back, um, here in the U.S. it took a while to kind of build because we got it a year late, um, and it just took a while with word of mouth from Sci-Fi Channel and so forth. I mean, now it's it's huge here, um, comparatively anyway. And um, it seems like during those early years with Ackleston and the first couple of Tenant seasons that it was... How shall I say it? The ratings were good, but I didn't get a sense of a lot of conventions going on over there. Um, not in the UK. I mean, um, what we did have almost from the very start mm-hmm. was um, the Doctor Who uh, uh, exhibitions. Mm. Um, because right at the start, there was a Doctor Who exhibition for the Christopher Eccleston period that was held on um, Brighton Pier. Mm-hmm. And I went. We we made a point of going along to that. We journeyed all the way down to Brighton to have a look at this exhibition, and we went along. We, we left it and left it and left it. And it was literally like the last week that this exhibition was open. And there were some costumes in there. There was um, a Dalek, which had a big button in front of it, which basically had a sign for the kids that says, "Do not press this button." Mm-hmm. So you go and press the button. Mm-hmm. And then the Dalek's ears would like light up and it would sort of speak a bit and his head would turn. Um, and I remember seeing sort of tucked in a corner out the way was this um, original series uh, Dalek, which I now know is was one from uh, Patrick Troughton's era, hmm. in an appalling state of repair. All the hmm. paint was peeling off it. There was bits missing off of it. That was originally sold at auction a, a couple of years ago. Um, but it was a very, very, very basic exhibition mm-hmm. uh, there was no real effort put into it um to, to to make it anything sort of remotely like what they do sort of uh do now um and there was only um costumes from one series and uh, there was only 13 episodes that they'd made at that point mm-hmm. so there wasn't much of a of a resource for them to actually sort of put um, on display and every year they've brought out more and more exhibitions larger exhibitions um, and it's just sort of gone on from this but sort of convention wise no and there's there, there's been Doctor Who conventions going on um, right. they've been quite small scale they tend to have um, uh, a meeting at a, uh, at, a, at a pub or somewhere like that or a school and they might have along three or four guests from the classic era uh, there's a sort of interview, signing session, maybe a photograph, but that's but that was really about it. I mean, it, it was quite small scale. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was again it was it was nothing like what you guys were doing in the states with Gallifrey, um, or anything like what the BBC have done with the official convention that was done in Cardiff last year. Now at these. Uh uh, events, whether they be small scale and such. Now, uh, and granted, I can I only have time quest to go off of here, but um, would you say that the the costuming there is anywhere near what the costuming is in the U.S.? No, no. Um, the guys over here, they 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 don't. It's really a sort of um, uh, it's a very minimal thing. It's a, a minority of people will dress up in costume mm-hmm. um, and the costumes will be quite crude they, they won't be 
um, as heavily researched or uh, proficiently made as they are, as they are sometimes are seen in, in in the states. No, it's you would certainly maybe have about five or six people you could maybe persuade to group together to have to sort of do a photograph. Mm-hmm. But in, in in the US, when I've been to been into Gallifrey, been to Gallifrey, you you everywhere you turn. There is someone dressed as Rose. There is someone dressed as Amy. There's five people dressed as the Doctor. It's just everywhere people dressed in costume. Um, I don't know what it is about the UK that we that we don't dress up as much as you guys. Um, <laughs> I don't understand it. It's because it's. I see it as enormous fun. I see it as part of the convention, a part of um, getting along and sort of taking part. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do sort of look at some of these people who just turn up in their normal clothes thinking, oh, you could have made an effort come on guys <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, but yeah I, I think I think more people should should dress up in costume at, at uh, UK conventions you know I, it, it's just part of having having a good time mm-hmm. getting involved and just sort of letting your hair down for uh, for a change so yeah go oh. for it guys come on Agreed, and I think it's funny because it's you know it's UK based. It's your show, man, and uh, yeah, I know. And we're in the best position to have some of this stuff. I yeah, mean, I mean, all of the all of these um, the rose costumes and all that stuff was all shot bought. It was all just shot bought off Oxford Street. It's yep. all like stuff that was bought here. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start seeing like the list of the of the labels that were that are on those clothes that that Rose and Amy and. Um, Martha Jones wore and you go down Oxford Street and there's like there's all those shops down there mm-hmm. all of those labels they're all just in like a straight line you haven't mm-hmm. really got to go anywhere else um, so yeah so it's all just on our on our doorstep I mean I, I mean I things like I found the original blue um, suiting fabric that was used for David Tennant's suit just in a basement of a of a Soho Fabric yep. shop, you know, it was all just just sitting there, just mm-hmm. just sort of waiting, and and the 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 tweed fabric that um, Ewan found. I mean, that's all just just sort of sits in the um, on the on the shelves of W Bill. You know, it's all just it's all just there waiting to be found. So yeah, so we're in the best position to to have access to this stuff. And as and more more recently, when um, they've been doing filming for Series Seven mm-hmm. and. The guys on DW Cosplay sort of get get straight onto the internet, and they're identifying the clothes that that, that are being worn. You know, and you 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 can, if you're quick enough, rush out there, and you can go to Top Man, <laughs> you can go to Top Shop, and you can get the stuff. If you're quick, um, if you're quick, mm-hmm. um, it does feel a bit odd buying it because you, you haven't seen the episode yet, so you buy this costume and you you sort of put it in your wardrobe you think oh okay I'm not really sure what that's going to be about and then you see the episode broadcast you, oh, that's that costume I bought and you can then start actually wearing it and it has some sort of meaning mm-hmm. but yeah that, that, that early stage um, yeah you can you can rush out there and, and, and get the stuff I mean when um, Matt Smith started and there was very quickly identified the the the, the, um, the houndstooth jeans that he wore from mm-hmm. Top Matt right um I went to Top Man on Oxford Street, and there was a whole rack of them. And I needed like a waist thirty six, and they only had like one waist thirty six there, so I grabbed that. And mm-hmm. off. But there was a whole rack of them. There was like you know, twenty or thirty pairs of these trousers, just just sort of just sort of on 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 the sort of rack there. And they're all they're all quite cheap. They're only like sort of thirty pounds a pair. Yeah. And I bought a second pair um, when they were 
um, in the sale, and they were half price. Mm-hmm. So you could pick them up for like sort of fifteen pounds. Um, and now you can't get them for love or money. No. And I just feel that sort of at that time I should have just like got that rack, picked up all twenty pairs of those trousers, uh-huh. and just gone to the checkout. You know, <laughs> so. You sort of live and learn, don't you? You sort of live and learn. Uh, very true. And you're always limited on what time and uh, budget you have in the moment. Yeah, but, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. As, as always. That, well, remember at that time, it was a big deal not only with the idea of the, the trousers, but also the shirt. The shirt was a big deal and the boots. I mean, I, I remember yeah. how crazy that was. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got swept up in that. I mean, I, I was after a pair of the, the All Saints boots. Mm-hmm. And the, the point when they were just... It was they'd just been identified. Was the point when they were literally were were discontinued, and they were in their sales. Um, yep. And I phoned round every branch of All Saints in the in the south of England, and I only found one shop that had two pairs of boots left, mm-hmm. and that was down in Bristol. And I had we had we had to drive like 150 miles to Bristol to get these boots, and got down there like first thing on Saturday morning um, Mm -hmm. because the guy said oh they're in the sale so I can't hold them for you because someone might come in and want to buy them (laughs) and I was like okay but I'm driving 150 miles to sort of come down to your shop to buy them he goes well if they're here you can have them (laughs) so we set out at like 7 o'clock on Saturday morning drove 150 miles down to Brighton we're there at the shop 9am as it opened the sort of manager was walking in so you know why are you hassling me you're like all saints boots I'm after the after the lab <laughs> and oh yeah yeah they, they're sort of just down there so I grabbed these boots bought them and then okay we need to drive 150 miles home now um, so and that was it and that was the only pair that was that was available in in the sort of south of England and I managed to grab them um, and they were just gold dust I mean you've seen them on eBay how much they fetch now on ebay is sort of ridiculous and then later we find out that he didn't even wear the all saints boots they were copies right so you know it's every time you sort of find something out there's always some little twist Mm -hmm. at the end there that sort of just sort of snatches it from your grasp oh yeah yeah (laughs) so you you know you sort of think you found the exact boots that matt's been wearing but they're not they're actually copies anyway so at least you found the ones that they're based on so which is still pretty darn good but yeah i I know what you're saying it's uh with a lot of uh, movie costumes tv costumes certainly here in the u.s i generally assume unless it's not like a soap opera uh that it is especially for the main heroes um custom made uh, so it is kind of amazing when you can say, hey, no, it's this brand, it's this make, you can go buy it in this shop right now or still get it on eBay for, yeah, yeah not a song. And that's amazing to me. That's like, ooh, and like when the Paul Smith shirts were ID'd, even though, again, we're all scrambling for those last shirts in that, what was that, August, September. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and even those, as good as they were, had to be altered a bit because only a couple were the right cut and others had to have those adjustments. And oh. Yeah, I- I never really saw that Paul Smith shirt in exactly the right configuration mm-hmm. with the right cuffs um, and the right details on it. I, I never quite saw the right version. Um, I saw several different types of it. There were always very slightly different flavors of that of that shirt. The mm-hmm. Ones with just plain cuffs, the same with this, with, with with the scrolly pattern as the rest of the shirt. Mm-hmm. And then there was ones that, that did have the striped cuff, but the button stand was what wasn't right 
And yeah. then someone found one which had French cuffs, which had these big sort of fold-back versions of the stripes on them. That one was very odd. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the different versions where sometimes the back was heavily tailored, so it was a really slim fit. Mm-hmm. And at other times it was a lot looser. So you could never quite tell as to if you had actually found one of these shirts as to whether it was even remotely going to be the right one. So, <laughs> um, And I never did see anyone really have the exact right shirt. Um, again, that does have you wondering whether they bought that shirt and thought, hey, this is the sort of thing we want, but it's not how we want it to be. So maybe they made printed their own fabric. Maybe they made their own shirts. Um, you sort of never can tell. Um, yeah, maybe. They, may have, they, they sort of may have been sort of inspired by that shirt and, and made their own version. Uh, or just bought the shirts that were very close and altered them slightly for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, when I've spoken to people like Louise Page, I mean, she has mentioned to me that on some of the rose costumes that they did buy things and think, well, that was not quite the right colour of what we wanted. And they then did go out and dye them. Hmm. So there, there was one particular top, I can't remember which one she told me about. There was one that she actually got dyed. Um, and I did see that there was a lot of stuff on the forums that they were trying to identify the exact colour of this shirt. Uh. But it didn't actually exist because, because sort of Louise had dyed it. So. Uh-huh. Um, it, sometimes you are sort of, sort of, sort of chasing smoke, really. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's very true. Which gets into like when people do get something that's close enough, and you can't find that color for love or money. So of course they go a uh, shade up, they dye it down, it looks great, and they don't realize they're doing exactly what the production did. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like the over dyeing on the uh, the blue tenant fabric. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so back back to the tenant coat because uh, this is this is what kind of led you back down this path. So this was two thousand seven. Uh, would, did you ever think that five years ago, <laughs> yeah. you you would be you would be sitting here now, essentially being like you know a, a, a tailor to all the doctor cosplayers out there? Absolutely not. It was not my plan at all. I was I'd been working for twenty years in print and advertising mm-hmm. um, I'd uh, my first job out of out of college was working as what's called a paste up artist uh, working on the Argos catalogue mm-hmm. um, anyone out there who's got any old Argos catalogues dating back to the early 80s there are a couple of copies of the catalogue where I did model in them oh. I was actually like a, a sort of a I was like a sort of a photographic work. it was one of these things where they would need a photograph of someone doing something to as a feature shot, and they would be so tight on budget that they wouldn't pay a professional model. They mm. would just go, they would just go down to the studio and go, "Oh, Dave, could you come and do a shot?" And, oh, all right then, <laughs> and you'd end up being in the catalogue. Uh-huh. Um, so I mean, I, I did, I did, I did work on the Argus catalogue for like nine years, and then I worked um, in a pre-press house doing. Uh, preparing artwork for newspapers and magazines um and then i left that and i was working in an in an advertising agency where i was like an in-house pre-press department but we then had the sort of economic downturn over here in the uk like it's hit the rest of the world pretty much and um they they lost not any fault of their own they they lost a number of clients and they were starting to downscale and they decided that having an in-house department, which I'd been brought in to create, 
was like a luxury that they couldn't have anymore. So I, so, so I got laid off. Mm-hmm. So it was at that time that um, I'd already made a coat for um, this guy who was really sort of insistent. Mm-hmm. And I we'd been asked by a couple of other people to make coats as well. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure. Okay. So I was making these coats and I got laid off. And I thought, well, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll get these coats finished off. It's, it was the beginning of the summer. And I thought, okay, well, I can sort of get this done during the summer. And then I'll start looking around for some sort of proper, proper work after that. Mm-hmm. So I got these coats finished. Um, but before I could, someone else came along and said, oh, could, could, could you make me could could you make me a Peter Davison coat? Ah. <laughs> I, can, and, I can feel you looking at me across this microphone. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think, oh, I've never done this. I've never done anything like this before because I, I've only ever made stuff which I wanted to make myself. I'd never taken on board someone else's request. Can mm-hmm. you make me something that is like completely off the wall? And I was like, okay, okay. well, that's an interesting challenge. Um, that That could be fun. So I got the um, the, the Laughing Moon uh, frock coat pattern, which mm-hmm. is quite a well-known pattern that uh, people tend to use. Right. Um, made up like a test out of that, which I wasn't happy with. I didn't like the way that coat was coming together. Oh. So I'm, I, I did what I did in the old days, which was sort of look at it, think, well, that's not quite the right shape. So I freehand cut some changes to it, and I came up with a pattern where I changed... I think it was about 75% of that coat I'd recut huh. the shape because I, I wasn't happy with the, the, the skirt part of the coat was very straight. Mm. So I wanted that to flare out a bit more. I wanted it to be a little bit more wasted because I felt it was um, a bit too, it hung just a bit too straight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried to get a little bit more shape into it. Um, but I went around the houses a long way on that. I wasted tons of calico trying to get this pattern correct whilst the person who would sort of commission that coat was spending a lot of time coming up with the right shade of beige. You can say it's me. You're referring to the <laughs> third person like it's <laughs> like it's some secret. <laughs> yeah, okay, Bob. Yeah, okay. So 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 you were off doing all the uh, sort of sourcing the fabrics and I uh-huh. was trying to pattern. Um and I made that coat and it, it came out nice. It was it was it was it was a it was a good it was a good result. But I must I, it was at that point I thought I could be doing this better. I could be more efficient in how I'm making this. Mm-hmm. So I looked around and I thought, well, okay, well, there's um, colleges that will run classes on this sort of thing. So I thought, well, I want to go along and I want to learn how to just be a little bit more sort of methodical about my approach, how I look at what I want to achieve, how I achieve it, and then how I actually then make the thing up. And it was that was a real tipping point between thinking, okay, do, do, do I want to just do this as a hobby or do I want to try to be a little bit more sort of professional in the way I, I actually make things? Mm-hmm. So going to college was a major step forward. And in the first term of doing that, I learned so much. Um, Realised not where I was going wrong, but where I could hone my skills, get them to a point where I could create a pattern and it be 99% there mm-hmm. the first time rather than making something up and finding, oh, that's not right, this needs to be changed, that needs to be adapted. So it got to a point where when I made my first Shetland tweed jacket, mm-hmm. um, I literally bought the fabric for that on the Monday, college was on the Tuesday, we, we made the pattern, um, 
I made a calico on the Wednesday and by the weekend I was already cutting the the tweet and within a week after that I'd had the finished jacket done hmm. um, and I would not have been able to do that if I hadn't gone to college um, so that's a real major tip that I've got for people if you if you really want to try to um, sort of develop some form of skills like this you've really got to sort of go to somewhere where you, you can go to like an evening class or just get someone else's input who can give you some sort of pointers and direction and make sure that you're heading in the right in, 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 in sort of right sort of direction to be able to achieve what you want to do um, so going to college has been like a major um, boost to the to the sort of way I work mm-hmm. um, and it's also taught me a lot of stuff about about UK tailoring as well um, which I think is quite sort of important um, on this on on these particular types of garments that I'm making yeah you mentioned that that there's um, some interesting similarities yet differences between US and, and UK tailoring especially when it comes to frock coats yeah I mean I, I used that I mentioned before I used that um, laughing moon pattern Mm-hmm. Which is based if, if you read the notes on it, it is apparently based on um, a period frock coat, um, sort of Civil War type period frock coat. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is cut differently to how they're cut in the UK, and anything to do with Doctor Who is going to be based on UK patterns. Mm. And what I did when I when I went to college, I started doing some research, and I found myself um, a cutter's what's called a cutter's guide, and this was um, basically the instructions to a tailor on how to make the latest fashions. And this book covered a period around I think it was around eighteen ninety to nineteen hundred, mm-hmm. um, when frock coats were just on their way out. And what was called the lounge jacket was starting to come in. And the lounge jacket is just a real basic block that will give you a good fitting suit type jacket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has been the core of what I've done ever since. Because that lounge jacket block has become the ultimate tenant suit. It's the same pattern that I've used for the Shetland tweed jacket mm-hmm. with the with the free button closure and that's then also the same pattern that's been used for the Donegal jacket that I made myself which is like much lower cut two button closure mm-hmm. um, but it's all down to looking at the, the, the jacket looking at the style lines and looking at how the seams are and it's surprising how um, little the structural seams move between each of these different garments it's really just down to the style line and um how they're basically cut so it's you're you're able to use a very basic block and make a wide variety of of, of costumes out of it um and in that book as well there's a pattern for a frock coat Mm -hmm. which again it's it's a pattern which is it just just pulls it in a little bit more at the waist um, and has a little bit more flair on the skirt, and the way it's put together is quite a bit different to how it's done in the US. Um, and looking back at the assembly instructions on the Laughing Moon pattern, I mean, it's a great pattern. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm knocking it, but mm-hmm. um, the way it's actually put together 
is nothing like how it's done in the UK. There are some really subtle assembly methods that are done on frock coats that I've realised almost define a frock coat. And mm. having looked at a number of frock coats, I mean, real variety of ones, I'm mean, talking about the the um, Colin Baker coats, the Tom Baker frock coats that he wore, mm-hmm. um, the um, Peter Davison coat, there's some very distinct traits which uh, in all three of those coats, even no matter how different they appear, there are certain things about how that coat is put together which are absolutely consistent between all of them. And it's something which um, I've come to realise is really down to how British tailors put things together, how what we would call in the UK like a sort of Savile Row tailoring hmm. is done. So um, sometimes when stuff is done um, overseas, uh, it tends to pick up the traits that are done in that local area so if you get something made and it's been um outsourced to somewhere in the far east they will do their tailoring the way that they do it mm-hmm. because I, I i bought a suit around the time that i was trying to get my tenant coat and when right. it arrived it didn't quite fit so i thought well rather than send it back i'll just take it to my local tailor and get him to to, to make some changes to it so he was look. He was looking at it and saying, "Oh, yeah, we need to do this. We need to do that." And he goes, "Oh, where did you get this suit made? Was it was it was it sort of made in like the sort of Far East?" And I was like, "How did you know that?" Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't tell him this. There was nothing inside it that that, that said that it had been made in the Far East. Mm-hmm. He goes, "Oh, you know, I can just tell. It's this the sort of way it's made." And I thought, "I can't tell," but now now I look at that suit, I can see. Yes, I can see exactly what he was talking about. There's just ways that pockets are done, the ways that the lapels are cut is just completely different to how it's done in the UK. And Savile Row tailoring tends to be a lot more fitted around the waist. It's a much more um, slimmer cut. Hmm. Yeah. It's a much more sharper look and feel about it. It's that sort of 1960s, um, the sharpness of the Beatles, you know, that, 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 that type of um, look about it, the sort of Carnaby Street type. Um, Whereas if you look at stuff that's more sort of European tailoring, like sort of the sort of uh, uh, Italy stuff like that, they they tend to cut things a lot looser, hmm. have much wider shoulders, much looser fitting jackets, which are more like the sort of thing that you used to see on sort of Miami Vice. Right. You know what I mean? That that's more of like a sort of Italian type tailoring. Mm-hmm. It's a lot looser. Um, so every country will will cut. A suit in a different way um, and when you look at what's going on on Doctor Who that is distinctly British tailoring you can see that uh, the, the, the people that have made those clothes are UK tailors mm-hmm. uh, and that's what I try to bring to some of the stuff I do that I that when I when I look at a new jacket um, when I did like the Shetland Tweed I mean all of that's been interfaced with horsehair interfacing it's got pad stitched lapels it's got hand finished collars it's, it's that that type of thing which is all about how how a British tailor would actually sort of make a coat mm-hmm. um, and, and that, that that is where I try to sort of make a dis- make, make, make a distinction with the work that I produce no uh, yeah and that makes perfect sense that um, 
you you want it to reflect where it was made and when it was made and not just what it's representing because it's sort of yes it's this edwardian look but it was made in the 70s or it was made in the 80s and you got to factor all of those things in um and that's so funny though i mean it, it makes perfect sense but i never really thought about it to that detail um would you say that in the u.s um uh, that the, one of the key differences is that we do tend to fit things a little looser here, maybe not the Italian style, but... Well, cause... yes, very much so, because, again, when I've, been, when I've been at college and I'm listening to my tutor talking to the rest of the class about the patterns that they do, because we have people come in and they've just basically brought in a pattern that they've bought at a local um, fabric shop, they've bought a bit of fabric, and they're, they're coming along to the class to say... I want to make this dress out of this fabric. Mm-hmm. And the tu- and my tutor will go, okay, well, this is how you do it. This is how you follow the instructions. And she always says how the the U.S. patterns, which are like sort of Vogue, um, uh, stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, they tend to be a lot looser on the fit, whereas the European ones, the like ones by Bardo, which are um, a, a sort of German um, uh, pattern maker, those tend to be a lot more tighter fitted um, and there's all this stuff about vanity fitting where basically you have a pattern which says it's chest 38 mm-hmm. but it's actually chest 40 because you like to think you're a chest 38 <laughs> yeah we don't face up to the fact that we're actually chest 40 mm-hmm. so the pattern will say 38 on it but it will actually be a chest 40 mm-hmm so there's all these little sort of things about it. And the American cuts, yes, they are a little bit more generous because, how can I put it, the American figure is a little bit more generous. <laughs> well, um, yeah, no, 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 you have a good point because if you go to a regular uh, shop, you know, at Macy's or Target, uh, what they list for a 34, 36, whatnot, tends to really in reality be a lot bigger. And that's also why when you're searching for stuff that's vintage um, at a thrift store, such as uh, a tweed jacket or frock coat, and you're trying to get it from the 60s or 70s, it becomes very problematic because sizing was different back then. Yes, it would have been a lot more possibly truer. Yes. It would have been a chest 36 is a chest 36, mm-hmm. whereas a chest 36 now is a chest 40. So... Um, you think you're a chest 36, but you're actually a 40, and you're looking for something vintage, you buy a chest 36, you find it doesn't fit, because uh-huh. you need to buy what was a vintage 40, mm-hmm. because that is the size you actually are. Right. Um, but yes, the 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 basic um, shop-bought patterns from the US will be a slightly more generous fit, and they will be slightly less fitted, slightly less wasted, so you're, you're, you, you won't get as much of a sort of hourglass shape on mm-hmm. a jacket, if you know what I mean, where you it, it sort of fits in and then flares out a bit. You, you won't get as much in the pattern on that with a US pattern. Um, so I do tend to avoid those US patterns unless it's something where I'm trying to replicate something which is distinctly of that ilk. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm all, virtually everything I do these days, I'm always going back to my pattern books from. The sort of that are actually Edwardian books. Um, I've got a particular set of books which date from around the mid 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a three volume set. It's a great big thick three volume set. Um, cost me about two hundred pounds on eBay. Mm. Um, but I've used so much stuff out of that. It's out of that book that I got my pattern for um, 
an army, what's called an army warm coat, which became the green great coats that uh, Matt Smith wore in right. uh, Let's Kill Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I made that, I, the only thing I had to change on that entire pattern was adding the storm vents front and back and adapting the style line of the lapel. Basically, the entire cut of the body of the coat was exactly the same as this pattern that I'd found. Hmm. Um, so, And in that, in that book as well, I've got there's patterns there for RAF great coats, stuff like that, which are all very much like the stuff that uh, Jack Harkness wears in Torchwood. Right. Uh, it's, it's the same pattern as well on that. Um, and looking at it, it has me wondering whether that's the sort of basic blocks that were possibly used when they did the tenant coat, because there's aspects on that which are quite similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, all of these old musty books that you think, oh, they're, they're, they're not really worth looking at, they're, they're enormously um, valuable as a resource. Um, and these books have these blocks, but they basically tell you how to draw a pattern. If you've, if you've got your body measurements, it says measure measure A to B as the as the waistline plus an inch or something. It tells you how to draw um, a pattern up to your size mm-hmm. or to a size which, which whichever you want to do. It's not just one pattern. So you can sit down and just draw these patterns and suddenly it just comes alive out of the book. You've got uh, an old musty book and then the next thing you've got is like a, a coat that you can wear. And it's absolutely amazing. And that's where we lose the signal for this episode. So come on back for part two of three with my rather in-depth discussion with Mr. Steve Ricks. We're going to keep talking tailoring and all kinds of other Doctor Who goodness. This is the countdown to Gallifrey One. Next week, we're going to have a fun interview with Nicole Carlson talking crossplay in The Fifth Doctor and a special roundtable discussion with a bunch of the gang talking what's in store at Gallifrey from the cosplay end. Uh, otherwise, if you have any other ideas or suggestions, please go to www.costumestationzero.com, and I'll be happy to answer them. Otherwise, I'm going to wish you all a good one. This is Bob Mitch, signing off for Costume Station Zero. <laughs>